Well, we're turning this evening in our studies in Romans, which we continue to Romans chapter 8, and our passage this evening, chapter 8 and verses 5 through 11, and you'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 944. And if there happen to be any devotees of the New International Version, and you've brought your own New International Version tonight, let me encourage you tonight to use the Pew Bible. Keep your New International Version open if you so please, but uh, make sure to open at page 944. And if I can remember, uh, I'll explain why. And if I can't remember, I think it will be obvious. Well, before we turn to the Word, let's turn to the Lord and ask for His assistance in our study together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we delight to be in Your presence on the Lord's day. We thank You for the measure in which we share in the experience of the Apostle John on the island of Patmos when he was in the Spirit in the Lord's day and felt a door was opened before him into heaven and heard a voice inviting him to come and join the worship of heaven and to hear the Word of the Lord. We lift up our hearts to You, O Lord, and thank You for Your open door into Your heavenly presence and for the special consciousness we enjoy as we gather together that You come and visit Your people, or better, You come and You take us into Your presence to worship You with those who are invisible to our eyes, but who surround Your throne and sing Your praises without sin and without end. And we pray as we remain the church militant, marching to Zion, but often battling against the world and the flesh and the devil, that this hour may be an oasis for us in the desert, and that together, by Your Word, by Your praises, by our fellowship together, we may be refreshed and strengthened and travel on to Your heavenly Jerusalem. So minister to us, we pray, our Father, by Your Spirit, through this Word, we pray it for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen. Well, the eighth chapter of Romans, and we… let's begin to read at the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Well, this, I think, is sermon number 45 in our series of studies in Paul's great letter to the Romans. We are going to take 18 months to do this, not consecutive months, but total months. We may be a little behind schedule or a little in front of schedule. I'm not very sure but one of the challenging things about such a study, certainly from the perspective of looking outwards from this pulpit, is that you wonder whether there are people who feel we are going far too quickly and whether there are people who feel there are far too slowly in our movements. You wonder whether the number of brethren in the room who are seminary professors are being fed from God's Word, and whether the newest and freshest lambs of the flock are also being fed from God's Word. And that's one of the reasons from time to time, does it seem like every week, from time to time, we try to review where we are in Paul's teaching. And here is a very good place for us to understand the apostles' teaching at this point very simply. His theme is that the gospel is the power of God because in it the righteousness of God, the saving righteousness of God, is revealed to us. And he's announced that in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. From chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, he has told us the bad news. And the bad news is that we ourselves have no righteousness before God. We are helpless, and we stand in need of God-saving mercy, because by nature we are under God's judgment and wrath. But the good news of the gospel, chapter 3, verse 21, right through really to chapter 5, verse 11, is that in Jesus Christ, who has taken the wrath of God as the propitiation for our sins, by faith we can be justified, counted righteous, and in Christ we can find redemption from all our sins. And Paul has taken some time, hasn't he, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, to explain to us how it is and why it is that justification comes not by works of the law, but by faith. And then, really, from chapter 5, verse 12, he has begun to explain to us how it is that all our redemption is found in Jesus Christ. So, really, two very simple, if profound, thoughts. We are justified by faith, and that means we are not justified by the works of the law. And those who are justified also find their redemption, their whole salvation and deliverance from the dominion of sin, and ultimately from the very weakness and frailty of their bodies in the final resurrection, all of this redemption is ours in Christ Jesus. And what he's really doing in chapter 5, verse 12 to 21, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 23, and as we saw in chapter 7, verses 1 to 25, is walking us round the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. And he's begun by explaining to us that when we become Christians, we are removed out of the kingdom of Adam and sin and condemnation and into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and righteousness and life and salvation. We are no longer in Adam, we are in Christ. 
We've been brought into a new era altogether, into a, a new world altogether, which is why I remember even as a young teenager loving those words in the hymn that so well summarized my experience as somebody who had been brought into Jesus Christ. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen, which is why people's whole lives change when they become Christians. Yes, thank God they experience forgiveness, but it's amazing the number of people who experience forgiveness, and simultaneously their minds are expanded. They see the world with new eyes. They see people with new eyes. They especially see God's people with new eyes. They sing hymns with new voices. They have a totally different attitude to those with whom they used to run as in the pack, and now they have compassion on them because of their blindness and their spiritual deadness. It's because we've been brought out of that nation of Adam, that kingdom of Adam, and we've been brought into union and communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, the following things Paul has been teaching us are true. First of all, in Christ we have died to the dominion of sin, and yet sin has not died in us, and therefore we fight against it and make progress. Second, we have died to the law, and this is chapter 7. But we are not yet perfect according to the standards of the law, and therefore we feel a tension within us that sometimes brings us to cry out, I am a wretched man. Who can deliver me? But because we are in Christ, we know what the answer is. The answer is, as Paul says in chapter 7, verse 25, thanks be to God. He will do it through Jesus Christ our Lord. But now in chapter 8, he's come to another dimension of this. No longer in Adam, but in Christ. No longer under the dominion of the law, although not yet perfect according to the standards of the law. No longer under the dominion of sin either, but still fighting against the presence of sin. And now he wants to say, there's another aspect to this. We are not only freed from sin's dominion and freed from the law's condemnation, but we are now, he says, no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And you notice that is exactly what he says here in verse 9, isn't it? You, however, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, that's a very striking thing to say, isn't it? He doesn't mean that you now have become disembodied spirits. He doesn't mean flesh in that sense. He means flesh as our human nature, warped and polluted by sin, inheriting, as it were, in its very structure a whole matrix of powers and, and tendencies that drag us away from God and turn our minds and hearts away from the grace of the gospel. You're no longer in the flesh. You are now, he says, in the Spirit. And I think it's important, contrary to the New International Version translation of Paul's little word, sarks, that we translate Paul's term here as flesh rather than as sinful nature. Why do I say that? I say that because you still have a sinful nature. Christians do not have a sin-free nature. 
and therefore they continue to have a sinful nature. We do not have two natures. We have one nature, a human nature. And as we saw some time ago, I think the better way to say this is that in Jesus Christ, I am a single, renewed, transformed human being with a renewed but as yet imperfect human nature. So, there are not two men battling within me, nor have I suddenly acquired two natures. Only the Lord Jesus Christ had two natures. I have one human nature. That's why, surprise, surprise, when you become a Christian, you still feel remarkably human. But you see what he's saying. He's saying this glorious transformation from Adam to Christ, from being under the dominion of sin to being freed from the dominion of sin, from being under the condemnation of the law to being freed from the condemnation of the law, is also a transition from a world in which we were dominated by the flesh, and now we are living in a world in which we are dominated by the Spirit. Now, of course, and here's the thing, those who are no longer in the flesh are still in the world. And so long as the Christian who is no longer in the flesh but in the Spirit is still living in the world, that Christian is bound to find himself or herself, as Paul says later on in Romans chapter 8, simply because he or she has the Holy Spirit as the first fruits of that full and final salvation that is still to come, says Paul in Romans 8.23, doesn't He? We who have the Spirit as the first fruits of our final and full redemption groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies, our final and full experience of our adoption as sons. And so, do you see the pattern that Paul has worked out in these three chapters? gloriously delivered from the dominion of sin, and therefore able to battle against it. When you are under the dominion of sin, you are absolutely powerless to battle against it. No longer under the condemnation of the law, but now free by God's grace to love His law and to serve Him through His law in the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet not yet perfectly and no longer living in the flesh, even although we live in the body. As we might say, Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, doesn't he? I'm writing to those of you who are in Rome. But although you're in Rome, you're also in Christ. And so long as you're in Christ and in Rome, you are bound to experience the clashing of these two ages. They don't fit together. And so long as that is true, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our redemption, the adoption as children. Now, I think what he says here in chapter 8, verse 9 is a great key to the first half of this chapter, and something that we need to uh, grasp in our understanding and apply its significance to our lives. How do you think about yourself? That's one of the great issues in these chapters. Do you think about yourself biblically, or have you made up your own way of thinking about the Christian life? You know, you've had your sins forgiven, so what do you do now? The rest of the Christian life is a kind of do-it-yourself. No, no, no. Paul is saying you need to see who you are in Christ through biblical lenses. 
It will transform your life. And that, at the end of the day, is what he's really on about. This is where he's eventually going in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to speak about how your life can be changed. Now, why doesn't he just say, God has provided us salvation, so change your life? Do you think changing your life comes as easy as that for the Apostle Paul? No, he says, I've got to work God's Word, God's way of thinking, the truth of the gospel in Christ. I've got to work it and work it and work it and work it into your mind until as a Christian believer, just as you may have experienced in coming to Christ, the scales fell off, and you thought, now at last I see, how was I so blind? The answer was, because you weren't listening to what God said about you. And now here in these great chapters in Romans, He's really helping us to think about ourselves in a gospel way. And as I say, it builds a glorious stability into us. Not only that, but I think I pointed out when we were in Romans chapter 6 that Paul had spent uh, five, six chapters almost before he told us anything that we were to do. You'd get run out of town in most Christian conferences for that kind of thing today. Give us something to do not until you've learned who you are in Christ, Paul is saying. And do notice he's at it again. We had some commands in chapter 6, 11, and 12, and 13. We haven't had a command since then. And we're scarcely going to have a command. You've got to try and find commands and statements that aren't actually commands until he comes to chapter 12. And then you want commands about what you should do, they will pile down upon you. So that if you didn't have Romans chapters 1 to 11, you'd be looking up into the face of God and saying to God, Oh God, have mercy upon me. I don't have the resources for this way of life. So, Paul is giving us great resources, and he's challenging us. You know when somebody who isn't a Christian says to you, the way I like to think about God is, you think to yourself, my dear friend, it's fooey how you like to think about God. But you know we sometimes make exactly the same thing, same mistake about the Christian life. Now, the way I like to think about the Christian life is, My dear friends, it's fooey how you like to think about the Christian life or how I like to think about the Christian life. The only thing that really matters is how God thinks about the Christian life. And this is why Paul labors this. And you say, but some of this is now, none of you is saying this. I speak rhetorically. But somebody somewhere who's not here might say, this is difficult for me to understand. Have you any idea how difficult I find statistics to understand? How difficult your mum and dad find some of the lingo you use on your cell phone to understand? Come on now. Let's have none of this. Now, I know I'm not speaking to… It's inconceivable that anybody in this room could possibly think this. This is hard thinking. But you see, the Apostle Paul wants us to be hard-thinking Christians. You're a student. You give hard thought, I hope, to your studies. You can mesmerize your friends with all the technical language you use about your studies. You don't want to be a baby, sniveling infant Christian by saying, it's all too hard for me. I can't understand He's writing to slaves, my friends, slaves in Rome. And he's saying this gospel is so big, it's going to take the stretching of your mind to begin to grasp it. But when your mind grasps it, 
he says, and this is Romans 12, 1 and 2, isn't it? The transformation of your life takes place through the renewing of your mind. Your mind. Well, you say, but I'll, I'm going to have my life transformed some other way. Not by the gospel, you're not. Not by the gospel, you're not. So, this is a, this is a tremendous thing. I thank God that you're here to listen to this, not because I'm preaching, but because this stretches your mind. This isn't the way you naturally think about anything. And here's a great truth for the Christian to get hold of, especially those Christians here and now who are battling with the lusts of the flesh. Thank God, says the Apostle Paul, you are no longer in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. And that's the only reason you'll ever be able to battle successfully against the flesh. So long as you're in it, you'll sink under it. That's what he's saying. But thank God through Jesus Christ we have been delivered from the dominance of the flesh, and we are now living under the dominance of the Spirit. Now, that's the exhortation, and it precedes the exposition. So, let's turn very quickly to the exposition, and I have two questions for Paul here, and you'll follow them very easily. Number one, apostle, what does it mean when you say we are no longer in the flesh. What do you mean by that statement, being in the flesh? Well, you'll notice that in these verses, he tells us being in the flesh is characterized by four things. Number one is a certain cast of mind. Isn't that interesting? Those who are in the flesh, he says, mind, or verse 5, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, why is that so interesting? Actually, because when we use the word flesh, we usually think about sensual things, don't we? Body-oriented things. But Paul says being in the flesh is having a certain cast of mind. I sometimes say to people, what do you think about when you've got nothing else to think about? What do you think about when you've got nothing else to think about? Does your mind go downwards instinctively, or does it go upwards to Christ instinctively? To be in the flesh means that you mind the things of the flesh, the things of this world, you think in a this-worldly manner. You think in horizontal terms. The things that really excite you are always the horizontal things. The way in which you think about other people is always horizontal. The line by which you judge them, it's always horizontal. How are they measuring up against the horizontal line? That's what it means to be in the flesh. It means to have a certain cast of mind, a certain disposition. And here Paul also means a certain affection. Your mind goes, generally speaking, towards the things that you love to think about. The mind tends to follow where the affections lead. And Paul is saying this is characteristic of those who are in the flesh. It's not something, as it were, that sticks on the edges of their bodies. It's something that has invaded their minds. And you see, that's why it's so troublesome. This is why dealing with people whose minds have gone is such a difficult task, because it's their minds that have gone. It's the very instrument God has given them in order to be able to think clearly that is thinking awry. So, how do you deal with that, you see? And this is, this is, this is what Paul is saying, is my, is my state by nature. I'm in the flesh, and I mind the things of the flesh. 
As a result, he says, there's not only a cast of mind, but there's a, there's a refusal in my will. There's a, there's a, a not able to will the things that please God. And indeed, he says, notice his language, those who are in the flesh not only don't will what please God, they cannot will the things that please God. Verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And you can prove this very simply by saying to your mind, mind, love God's law and submit to it with all your energy. You know, people say to you things like, you know, I have free will, and I can, I can choose any time I want. If I wanted to choose God, I could choose God. You have no idea what nonsense that is. Challenge them. Say, I challenge you to do it now. And they say, but I don't want to. And say, well, I challenge you to want to. Show me your enormous willpower by willing yourself to love God and to serve Him with all your energy. What's your problem, friend? The problem is you can't and you won't because the mind and will of the flesh are hostile to God. You see, again, it's not just a matter of those outward things that seem to be such flagrant contradictions of God's law. It's invasive. It's inside. It's the refusal to acknowledge God as the Lord of my mind and to bow before Him and to say, I want to have my mind focused on the things that please you. And I'm utterly incapable of doing that. There's also, do you notice, a grave defect of pleasure? Isn't this interesting? The mind that is set on the flesh and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's disastrous. That is disastrous beyond my powers of eloquence to describe why because this is what we were created for. You were created to please God. That's the reason He created you. You don't think that He created you so that He would please you as your plaything, the God of the universe. No, He created you for His good pleasure. He created you because He, he wanted you to be one of His dear children, to live in His presence forever and ever and ever. But the mind of the flesh, the disposition of the flesh, can never please God. And so, at the end of the day, the flesh can never really have any pleasure. That's why the flesh is so full of lusts for secondary pleasures and can never get enough of them. That's why when a man yields or a woman yields to sensual pleasures, they can never be satisfied with those sensual pleasures, and they're always wanting more and more and more and more and more, and they can never be satisfied. Ah, you don't need your Bible to tell you that. Mick Jagger will tell you that, won't he? But you see, the mind that is fixed upon the pleasure of God begins to find the whole of life bathed in satisfying pleasures. So, there's a cast of mind in the flesh. There's a refusal of the will in the flesh. There's a defect of pleasure in the flesh, and there is a deadly consequence in the flesh. Those who are in the flesh, he says, are settled on death. Verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death, spiritual death, physical death, 
eternal death? Of course. You don't think, do you, we need to say to the non-Christian, you don't think that by dying you'll suddenly develop delight for the presence of God and for the praises of God? No, you will die as you have lived, and you will spend eternity as you have lived, not able to please God and finding no pleasure in God, and all that there is in eternity outside that which pleases God and gives pleasure to God is death and darkness the outer darkness, the deep darkness. And that's where the flesh leads. And of course, the tragedy is the dead don't know they're dead. That's the tragedy. Anybody in your office, a chain smoker, or you go out of your office now. It didn't used to be this way. never used to be that when you left the building, you had to hold your breath for 15 seconds and run through the smoke zone. But those who smoke don't notice it. They have no idea, no idea whatsoever what they're breathing in. They have no sense whatsoever what they're breathing out all over you. They have no sense whatsoever what it's doing to the aroma of their clothes there. You see? And the spiritually dead are the same. Don't expect the spiritually dead to say to you, I'm spiritually dead. They can't sense it. That's the tragedy. The tragedy is it's not, it's not just out here. It's invasive. And Paul is saying, you remember how he puts it in Ephesians chapter 2? He says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the influence of the flesh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But thank God, we're no longer in the flesh. He's raised us up. This is what he's so grateful for. We are no longer in the flesh. Well, where are we then? You see, people who are in the flesh don't go around wearing T-shirts that say, I am in the flesh. It's not a geographical location where people become, as it were, fleshians. It's an entire disposition of existence. And just in the same way, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us out of that world of the flesh and brings us into the world of the Spirit. So, says Paul, verse 9, if you're a Christian, what a great thing this is. If you're a Christian, you're no longer in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. Now, just in case anybody misunderstands, he doesn't mean I'm in the Spirit. He doesn't mean that at all. He's not, you can be in the Spirit, but that's not what he means. He's not speaking about some spasmodic experience that a Christian has. He's speaking about a universe in which the Christian lives. He's speaking about being brought out of one community and into another community in which the Spirit reigns. And that's why he uses such language in verse 4 as walking according to the Spirit and living according to the Spirit in verse 5. And indeed, that's rather a good illustration, isn't it? The thing that makes it clear that a person is no longer in the flesh but in the Spirit is the way that person walks or lives. 
Ever notice this? This is one of the most amazing things to me, that you can recognize the voice of somebody you know out of the zillions of people you know when they call you on the telephone. Now, sometimes, of course, it's difficult to get mother or daughter. Isn't it? Don't you think that's an amazing thing? And even more amazing, you can be 200 yards from somebody, and just by seeing the way they walk, you recognize who they are. You recognize perhaps the family gate. And this is the kind of thing that Paul is saying, that when a person is removed from the world in which he's dominated by the flesh into the world in which he's dominated by the Spirit, it, it just shows. Well, in what ten things does it show? It shows in everything. It's as real as that. It shows in absolutely everything. Now, notice how he says this takes place. And I want you to notice there are three things here he says about being in the Spirit. First of all, he says, this new life in the Spirit is produced because of the identity of the Spirit who has come to indwell us. Look at the language, he says. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. But, he says, if Christ is in you, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And it's quite clear that he equates these two things. To be indwelt by the Spirit is one and the same thing as being indwelt by the Lord Jesus Christ, because the way in which Christ comes to indwell His people is through the gift of the Spirit that He sends into our lives. Jesus made this very clear, didn't He, in the farewell discourse in the upper room. He said, I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to ask the Father that I may send you the Holy Spirit, and when the Spirit comes through the Spirit, I will come and dwell in your life. That's why you are no longer in the flesh. Because if you're a Christian, hold your breath. Jesus Christ Himself dwells in you by His Holy Spirit. Let me put that just a slightly different way. This is mind-bending, but life-transforming and church-transforming. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit, who for 33 years dwelt in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, has come to dwell in you. I think I need to say that again. If you are a Christian, exactly the same Holy Spirit who for 33 years was present in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ has come to dwell in you. And if you have any doubt about that, the question to ask yourself is, well then, how many Holy Spirits are there? Well, how many Holy Spirits are there? Are there six, or a hundred, or two? There is only one Holy Spirit, absolutely, ultimately, eternally, finally, completely, and indubitably, one Holy Spirit. Well, what Spirit dwelt on the Lord Jesus? That Holy Spirit. What Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us? That Holy Spirit. You say exactly what I want to say. I want to say, there's no way in the world I can take that in. Exactly. But you need to begin to. 
That's actually the very first thing you and I need to know about the Holy Spirit. He is exactly the Holy Spirit who ministered on the Lord Jesus, and He comes to dwell in every Christian believer. Why do I say that's church transforming? Because, my dear friend, when I begin to think about you as somebody in whom the Spirit who dwelt in my blessed Savior for 33 years has begun to dwell I'm going to think of you in an entirely different way, aren't I? Don't you think? I mean, look at me. I'm pathetic. I'm absolutely pathetic. Why do you have any affection for me? Because even if you never put it this way, you think, my dear friend Sinclair Ferguson, is somebody in whom the Lord Jesus Christ is not embarrassed to dwell. And so, though he messes up more times than I ever tell him, I will have affection for him because I have affection for his Savior. This is absolutely amazing. So, Paul is saying to be in the Spirit means to be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ but not only to be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, to be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ who actually begins to work in our lives. This is what Jesus says. This is, this is amazing. I wish we'd another hour tonight so I could tell you how amazing this is. Jesus says, when I send the Holy Spirit, the thing He's going to do is to make your life a home for the Father and the Son to dwell in. John 14, he says, now I'm going away, and I'm going, to, I'm going to prepare heaven for you so that you can come and dwell with the Holy Spirit and with my Father and with myself. That's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. But he says, when I go there, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit back down right into your heart, and He's going to do the same thing in the opposite direction, and He's going to make your heart a home for the Father and the Son to dwell in. So he goes around. What does he do? He goes around doing the spring cleaning in your life. That's why we get knocked about so badly sometimes, because our lives are such a mess. And he's going to come by his Spirit and dwell in us himself. And you see what happens? Those who are no longer in the flesh but in the Spirit, oh my, oh my, they begin to set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Isn't that something? That your mind begins to love what it never loved before. I'm just you know, we get too used to the gospel, my friends, and we look around one another and we say, I'm used to you, but take a look around sometimes and think to yourself, I love these strange people. They all look so different. They're all so strange. They've all got such different habits, and I love them, and I can't help loving them. Why is that? because you begun to mind the things of the Spirit, and you begun to experience the shalom of Jesus Christ. Those who mind the things of the Spirit, says the apostle, experience gospel shalom, and one day will experience mighty resurrection if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He, the Father who raised Christ from the dead, will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And then you will no longer have to battle against the flesh, because your whole being will be under the dominion and gracious reign of the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, Notice his reference to the Trinity again.
Is Romans 8 your favorite chapter in the Bible, largely because of the second half? We've a few weeks still in the first half. It's only just beginning, my friends. And what he's beginning by saying is, know who you are as a Christian. Oh, know who you are. And when you know who you are, life really will begin to change. Well, I'm in deficit time now, but that's okay. Thank God for this gospel. Thank God for the way it stretches our minds. I find this a very difficult book, but oh, to have my mind stretched, my emotions stretched, my will bowed and to realize maybe this is a special… maybe some of you are struggling something terrible tonight, and nobody knows your sins, your temptations, your failures. Dear one, if you really are Christ's, you're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. That's why you're able to battle and to win, and He will help you by the Spirit He's given to you. Heavenly Father, fill our minds, we pray, with Your Word. Fill our emotions with an expansiveness of grace and joy, and flood our hearts, we pray, with a love for all those who are indwelt by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, Mr. Miller is ready for everything, and I think despite the fact that it's Blan Warren, uh, we will omit the final hymn. Uh, if you'll stand, I'll pronounce the benediction, and then we'll sing, To God Be the Glory. You know, I really wish I could get inside you and put all this inside you, but I can't. But the great consolation to me is the Holy Spirit can, and He will, because He indwells all of God's children. So go with joy into the world to serve your Lord Jesus Christ, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, our Heavenly Father, the help of the Holy Spirit, the strengthener, and the Comforter be with you all this night and forevermore. Amen.